0: Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come together, we, we, we come asking your blessing, blessing upon our worship, blessing upon a team that will go and serve, blessing on our lives. We come asking for blessing, but Lord, I pray that you would remind us once again that it is not a blessing we must pry from your hands, nor are we left, Lord, to find a strategy to somehow steal it from your heart. But you've already chosen to pour out your blessings upon us, and so that, Lord, our prayer is that our hearts might be open to receive your blessing even now. Convince us, Lord, of your true intentions, that you really do love us, and that you really do care, and that, Lord, as you have called us to yourself, that you really are able, by the power of your Spirit, to strengthen us to serve you and to live a life according to your plan. And then with that, Lord, give us hearts of devotion that we might run to you with nothing standing in between, that our hearts might be given to you in full devotion in the wonderful name of the one who gave himself to us, that of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. One of my very favorite United States college football coaches was Bobby Bowden of Florida State University. And he tells a story of when he was playing college baseball himself. When he was a student, he had never, in his four years of playing baseball, uh, ever hit a home run until it came to the very final season. And finally, he came to bat one uh, one game, and and he hit a, hit a line drive right into the right field line, and into the corner. Obviously, he was going to be able to go for extra bases, but it looked like it would be even more than that. And so, as he rounded first, he was looking to the third base coach, and what he saw, he had never seen before. The coach was jumping up and down and waving his arms in circles saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. And he started to run like he had never run before, and as he rounded second, he came to third, and the coach was going, go in, go in, go in, go in, uh, in the park home run, and he crossed the plate, and uh, his team came out and they cheered and, they, and they, were, they were pounding him on the back until the ball came in from the outfield to the pitcher who threw it to first base. And the first baseman stepped on the plate and an umpire yelled, you're out! <laughs> in shock, Bowden suddenly realized that he couldn't remember actually having touched first base. And years later, he made this experience into a life lesson. He said, if you don't care, take care of first base, it doesn't matter what else ever you do. You're out. And in life, if you don't honor the Lord first, it really doesn't matter what else you do. You're lost. And he is absolutely right. There are so many examples in the history of people who have begun their run at Jesus Christ with all sorts of enthusiasm. And whatever the reason is, curiosity, attraction, thrill, they they decide to join the Jesus movement. But they miss the most important part, the, the, the touching base, the finishing touch with Jesus Christ as their Lord. Over the years, I've detected a growing phenomenon as I've talked with pastors and church leaders who have described a rising number of people who who come to church and enjoy the spiritual fellowship and they engage in life and the programs of the church and yet see no need to take it any further than that. They feel perfectly satisfied, even justified, with being a friend of Jesus without ever making a commitment to him as their Lord. And in their minds, it's as if being friends is good enough which, you, if you read in the Bible, you find really does have its limits. In the book of Exodus, we read that Pharaoh respected Moses more than any man on earth, but they didn't stop him from sending out an army to kill him when he left. And in Mark chapter 6, we read that Herod knew Jesus, John the Baptist to be the righteous and holy man and loved to listen to him as he was in prison, but it did not stop him. From chopping off his head. Bill Self looks at this phenomenon that we find in the church today, and he writes this. He says, somehow, we, we, we have to find a way to make disciples and not inspiration junkies in our ministries. That's our command from Jesus Christ. When he says, make disciples of all nations. This morning, as, as I invite you to join with me again in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that is what is precisely at the heart of Jesus. And turn with me, if you will, there to, to Luke chapter 14. Now I should probably warn you, this is a very tough passage. And it requires careful reading and understanding. Because here, Jesus, as gentle as he is, lays out the cold, hard facts, Luke chapter 14, we read in verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, and I want to pause there for just a moment, to suggest that this is an introduction to a remarkable moment. You see, up until this point, Jesus had been having, a ve- had been having very pointed conversations. Whether he was surrounded by a crowd or not, much of what he had been saying up to this point was very focused. He was either in chapter 12, verse 1, speaking to disciples, or in chapter 12, verse 13, responding to questioners, or in chapter 13, addressing critics, a focused group that he has been speaking to, but here the scene is totally different. Large crowds have chosen to become uh, camp followers or fellow travelers with Jesus. His happy little band of disciples had become a a a caravan to the point where it was almost impossible to determine who belonged and who didn't and who was just tagging along. And so Jesus stops and he turns and 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 takes in the whole crowd and then cuts to the chase. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yet... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, words like that are guaranteed to stop you in your tracks. In fact, there is a very simple phrase that he repeats in this passage three times. Here in verse 26, he says, you cannot be my disciple. Again in verse 27, you cannot be my disciple. And again in verse 33, he says it for the third time, you cannot be my disciple. And it's obvious that Jesus has more in mind than generating a mass movement and attracting big crowds and increasing his attendance figures and making a name for himself. Heading to the top of the charts with a bullet. That's not on his agenda. Now, there's nothing really new about this. If you put your finger there and turn back to Luke chapter 13, verse 20, uh, 23, there, if you remember, we encountered someone who asked him a question. They said, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And in essence, this a question of numbers, Lord. How many are you going to save? What's the number that you have on your mind, Jesus? What's going to make you happy? What will make God happy? And look, if you do in chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus refused to answer that question because it was not about numbers. Instead, he looks at his questioner and he makes it personal. You make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many will try to enter and will not be able to. What an answer. It's not a matter of numbers. It's not a matter of popularity to Jesus. His only concern was commitment to himself. There is a way of salvation, a door that's already opened but must be entered. And according to Jesus Christ, no matter how many others may have taken God at his word and entered through that door, the only question that really matters for you and for me is, will you make it one more, please? With your decision, will you make it one more? The question of discipleship is not a matter of popularity, but of commitment. And here Jesus defines what it makes for quality commitment. What I have in your outline as demands for discipleship. Back in Luke chapter 14... Let's go there again. Woven into these verses, beginning at verse 26, are two critical, non-negotiable terms for being a disciple. The first is a matter of priority. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you've got to be really careful as you read this. Some may wonder if Jesus is demanding that we violate the Ten Commandments where in the commandments we are told to honor our mother mother and our father. And, And any other passage in Scripture that calls for respect and care and love within a family, it sounds like Jesus is violating that and setting it aside when you read that word hate within this. So to make sense of it, You have to keep two things in mind, please. The first is the nature of this whole passage is quite severe. It is hot. Jesus is thinning out the ranks of those who would just see him as a traveling companion, but not as the Lord of their lives. And so his language here is severe. And he is speaking primarily in negative terms. This is what cannot make a disciple. Rather than in positive terms, this can make you a disciple. So keep that in mind. Some of the best lessons you will learn come actually in a challenge like that. You can't continue doing what you're doing in order to do what you should, but it is up to you to change. So in light of that, as a negative, what cannot make you disciple a disciple, just think, how many people assume that their family relationships will bestow upon them God's favor? There are Christians who, because their mother or their father or some other family member is a Christian, assume that they are Christians too. Put this in negative terms, Jesus puts it on notice. We don't inherit salvation from others. It's a transaction of faith that has to be settled just between you and Jesus and no one else. Do you understand that? Do you catch that? The negative tone here then adds a second feature. Here, Jesus employs a grammatical tool, an idiom, in exegesis that New Testament scholars call a comparative statement, which essentially means this, not that we should hate our families or lives, which would contradict all the earlier commands of the Bible, but that in comparison to Jesus, if we were forced to choose between him and that, the winner of that choice would be Jesus every time. You see, in softer tones, Jesus said the very same thing in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 10, verse 37, when he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is a comparative statement, as is this. And by this, Jesus lays claim to your first love, your priority love, which sometimes can create a very painful moment. Every once in a while I see that agony. It may be in a young person who has become a Christian only to have a non-believing parent, a father or a mother, ridicule their commitment or threaten them or ignore what they have done as some sort of religious nonsense. I have actually, as a pastor, come across some parents who have told me they would much rather have to deal with a teen who has a drinking or a drug problem than they would with one who wants to go to church. And for that young person, discipleship, should they choose Jesus Christ, becomes a choice of priority. He or she must first decide to love Jesus first, and so should you. But do you know what happens because of their love for Jesus Christ? Do you know what happens to us because of our love for Jesus Christ as a result of that decision, that commitment? we are then enabled and empowered to love our family, not hate them, but love them with the love of God which surpasses all other love. So the question really comes to you, what is your priority? For a disciple of Jesus Christ, it is Jesus first, and everyone else then will benefit from that decision because they will benefit from his love. You cannot be a disciple until that is first resolved. Nor can you be a disciple until you have resolved the second critical, non-negotiable term of discipleship. What I have it on your outline as a matter of investment. Look at verse 27. If anyone does not carry his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Now if his first words hadn't slowed down the crowd, I'm sure that these second words would have stopped them dead in their tracks. Carry a cross? Is that what you expect? Everyone in that crowd would have known that word and it would have made them shudder. The Romans had made the cross a public tool of execution, and everyone would have had a bitter memory of seeing convicts forced to carry their own crosses to a place of execution, a place of complete and utter death. But again, be very careful with Jesus' words. He is not calling for us to have a suicidal commitment. There are some cults in our day who do. Here, drink some Kool-Aid. But not Jesus. Keep in mind, the words immediately following cross here are followed with the words, follow me, which means he must be alive. And that gets to the heart of the issue. What he has in mind here is the highest level of consecration that must exist in the heart of his disciple. Those who wish to be his must replace their selfish goals and desires and render themselves dead to their own selfish drives and ambitions in order to embrace God's will for their lives. And when it comes to making an investment of time or treasure or talent, a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ has crucified that voice inside that says, how is this going to benefit me? And they do it in order to hear with clarity the question, what would Jesus want me to do? And because they are alive to hear that voice, they are then alive to follow through with a whole heart of commitment. You cannot be his disciple without resolving your priorities or your investments. To to Jesus, it's a non-negotiable, and it's all about commitment. Look at verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up Everything, he cannot be my disciple. Once again, let me be very careful with the terms. Jesus is speaking in comparative terms here. He is not saying that disciples own no possessions and that spirituality is a matter of divestment. What he is saying is that no possessions will own his disciples. Let me repeat that. He's not saying that his disciples won't own possessions. What he's saying is that possessions will not own his disciples. Think with me. How often do we become slaves to the things we buy or that we desire? Our homes, our cars, our clothes, our computers, our televisions, our iPods, our iPhones. And in and of themselves, they are neutrals. Neutrals. They are neither good nor bad, but when they begin to own us and keep us from following Jesus and responding to his bidding, it becomes an issue. I don't quite know how to apply this, but I do know that there are times when it's as if we come to a fork in the road where our possessions bid us to go one way while Jesus has another path and we must make a decision. For a a disciple of Jesus Christ, that decision is a done deal. So the challenge of decisions are there. And I can imagine in Luke, the crowd is, is then sudden, uh, stunned to silence. It's, this little question is probably percolating in their brains saying, is Jesus trying to get rid of us? No, no, not at all. Because you see, woven in these demands, he lays out then solid reasons why each condition needs to be resolved in a disciple's heart. And it it's all because of the conditions that God has already anticipated in our future and issues and challenges that right now in our present we can't even begin to imagine. Now here you're going to have to follow me very carefully. In verse 28, the first issue that that God has anticipated that that really commends discipleship to you is the challenge of the future. Listen, Listen as I read verse 28 again. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or... Suppose that a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one who is coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation to the other while he is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Now, I, I have to confess to you, I had to work really hard in order to understand this one. Because on the face, the, the conventional wisdom leads to one interpretation. Over the last few years, I've been engaged as a professor at the seminary with a specialty in leadership development and organizational management. So when I read this, it it sounds to me like the prime passage for leadership principles. If you're going to lead, well then you've got to learn how to plan ahead. And if you're going to be a leader, you're going to be held accountable. That's what it looks like on the surface here, doesn't it? But look at it again. Understand the characters of this parable. According to Jesus, we are not the builder in this story, nor the king going to battle. We are not. God is. The apostle Peter got, a, got Jesus' point whenever he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you and I are in fact the building material like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The builder here in this story is God himself. And our lives are then reflective of his craftsmanship, of his design, of his architecture, and of his skill. And the parable here is simply saying that God is the one who had a plan for your life and is the one who has the resources to be able to bring that life to its fold so that you can become the man or the woman that he intended you to be from the beginning of time. He ensured that he would have everything in place as the great contractor to make sure that what he intended of you would come to completion. Do you catch that? Because of that, what it means is that our relationship, my relationship with God is critical. Take that same thought over to the part of the king who sees our lives as a battlefield. And and, and what we read here is that he is determined to win in and through your life. And seen in that light, it is an amazing thing. It tells me what I am worth to God and what you are worth to him as well. It also tells me that he is determined to fight for you and me, and that he has a plan that he will he'd be willing to die for, which he did. And because of that, our relationship with him is critical, because he is the only one with the insight and the vision to fulfill our, the plan for our lives. Why? Because he knows every challenge you will ever face. He knows what he is trying to build out of your life. And he knows the full dimensions of the battle that you face in your future. So that commitment to him is for your welfare. He knows that you dare not go into the future except as a man or a woman of God. Can I get an amen Oh, and one more story. You dare not let the present moment go to waste. Well, oh, you may find yourself having to come to church every Sunday, or maybe recently, and you find yourself actually getting comfortable hanging around Jesus. It just seems right. You you have a bit of an appetite, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that has may awakened in you, and so that in these moments, uh, your closeness to Jesus is almost like salt on your tongue. It's good for the moment. But read on in verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil, for the manure pile it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is Jesus' way of saying, it is time to seize the day and become the salt of the earth. You have got to make up your mind. Are you going to be the salt of the earth, a disciple of Jesus Christ, or not? Listen up. It is time to decide. Not too long ago I read of a high school graduation in the United States where three military recruiters showed up to address the high school seniors. Graduation was only a few days away and the Military men were there for the obvious, to articulate to those graduating young men and women the options of going into the military, and everything that would be provided for them should they be recruited. The meeting was to have lasted for 45 minutes, and so the recruiters began, each one representing the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. I don't know why they didn't include the Coast Guard. I'm an officer in it. I'm so offended. But anyhow, they were all each to have uh, 15 minutes each for the 45-minute session. Well, the Army and the Navy recruiters, understandably, they got carried away. So when it came time for the Marine to speak, he only had two minutes allotted to him. So he walked up to the stage, and he stood in utter silence for a full 60 seconds, half of his time, as his eye went over all of those seniors. And in silence, he looked at them, each one of them, as it seemed, in the eye. And then finally, he broke the silence and he said this, I doubt whether there are two or three of you in this room who could even cut it in the Marine Corps. But I want to see those two or three immediately in the dining hall after we are dismissed. You are dismissed! And he turned smartly and sat down. When he arrived in the dining hall... He was greeted by a mob. Boys and girls, given the challenge to become men and women, acted without delay. They would be more than the one or two. They would be the many. Why did they respond? Because he appealed to the heroic dimension in every heart, and that is in your heart as well. And they were ready to respond Jesus couldn't make it any more clear. So how about you? Are you ready to take up the cross? Do you have the courage to step it up? Are you ready to to take on a new name, follower of Jesus Christ, Christian? Now is the time for you to decide. So let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, in obedience to your claim in our lives, on my life, I give myself to you this day, all that I am and all that we are, yours and for you using. Take us away from ourselves and our sinful preoccupation with self and use us up as you will, where you will, when you will and with whom you will. And teach us to know the truth of your word, that as we have been crucified in Christ, we no longer live, but that you live in us. And the life we live today, we live fully and abundantly in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.